0: Hello everybody, this is the second in a series of podcasts for the British Society of Haematology covering different aspects of haematology from recently published BSH guidelines. My name's Simon Rule, I'm a haematologist from Plymouth and we're going to be talking about mantle cell lymphoma today, for which I spend a lot of my time doing. Uh, I have a mantle cell lymphoma clinic in Plymouth and have spent many years looking after these patients. So this is an update on the guideline that we produced in 2012 and in that guideline we covered all aspects of the disease from treatment uh, to diagnosis and staging all the important elements. What we've done in this occasion is split the guideline in two so we have one on diagnosis and investigation and, and a second one on treatment. So let's start with the diagnosis and investigation. There hasn't been a big change from the previous guideline from 2012 and the usual kind of things with respect to lymphoma still apply in that one requires an adequate biopsy and one of the challenges we have in lymphoma these days is getting adequate pieces of material so lymph node is preferable recognizing that increasingly uh, biopsies are being performed by our radiological, radiological colleagues which are challenging sometimes to make a diagnosis in. Nonetheless that's what we have to live with. Um, Having had a biopsy then of course expert histopathological examination is important. Within the context of mantle cell lymphoma, assessment of cyclin D1, uh, FISH particularly in those leukemic patients looking for a T1114 can be a useful adjunct to diagnosis. You don't necessarily need it but certainly in the context of leukemic disease it's very important to help in the differential diagnosis. SOX11 is not needed, particularly the indolent phenotype of mantle cell lymphoma, SOX11 negative is very rare and uh, that doesn't actually apply in nodal disease. So the recommendation is that we should be doing SOX11 in those patients who are cycling D1 negative and felt to be uh, diagnostic of mantle cell lymphoma. With tissue biopsies, key 67 important, proliferation is a very important feature of this disease. And certainly in those patients whose key 67 is greater than 30%, that does confer slightly worse prognosis. However, the caveat that it's a difficult thing to assess, so be very cautious about using key 67 in isolation when it comes to managing patients. With respect to further investigations, we don't recommend PET scanning. Doing a PET scan is not a bad thing. It's not contraindicated, but just be cautious in over in over- uh, analyzing a PET scan, it doesn't upstage from a CT scan, and be careful in using a PET scan for assessing uh, outcomes following treatment. We don't recommend endoscopy routinely. We know that in this condition, the bowel is often involved, and in those patients with perceived local disease where radiotherapy is being considered, then an endoscopy with biopsy would be appropriate because that may well upstage the patient and perhaps lead to a different treatment approach. We don't recommend routine assessment of the CSF uh, unless the patient's giving you sy- symptoms of concern with respect to CNS disease, that's not something that uh, we would necessarily recommend. So in comparison to the uh, guideline we produced in 2012, there hasn't really been a significant change with respect to diagnosis and investigation. And to be fair, the diagnosis is, is invariably correct these days, particularly in patients presenting with nodal disease. It's just a case of um, being careful to diagnose those patients with a leukinic presentation. So from diagnosis, let's move to therapy. And there have been quite a number of advances uh, since 2012, and those are reflected in the treatment guidelines. Firstly, we further emphasise the fact that watch and wait is an appropriate approach to these patients. Whilst from a diagnostic point of view, it's not possible to actually pinpoint who these patients are. There isn't a very clear biomarker as yet. Uh, Watch and wait in those patients with low-volume disease who are asymptomatic and uh, with reasonable blood count and, of course, are happy to watch and wait remains appropriate. Um, We had that in the original guideline, but I think we're a bit more um, convinced that that's that's an appropriate thing to do now. For younger patients, the treatment of choice is high based therapy followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. That was in the previous guidelines, but what we now know is that maintenance rituximab is very important here. So a strong recommendation for maintenance rituximab following an autologous stem cell transplant, that does lead to a a survival benefit. So that's an important thing to be doing. For uh, the majority of patients where high-dose citarabine is not an appropriate treatment based on age or comorbidity, then uh, CHOP or bendamustine-based therapies are appropriate and maintenance rituximab is recommended. Um, Of course rituximab uh, is very effective in this disease post chemotherapy. There is a differential effect of uh, maintenance with the different chemotherapies but there's no specific details within this guideline so the recommendation is rituximab maintenance following initial treatment and also of course rituximab in combination with chemotherapy. That was a UK trial that proved that. Again PET is not recommended uh, with respect to therapy. Again, it's well uh, understood that PET um, will see this disease very clearly and with the context of patients with those thought to have localised disease then PET may well be helpful there. But as I said previously, it doesn't necessarily upstage people. If uh, patients are thought to have stage 1-2 disease then radiotherapy uh, is an appropriate thing. In my experience that's an extremely rare scenario and just be cautious with the dose of radiotherapy. We didn't go into that in any detail in the guideline, but lower doses, follicular lymphoma type doses, are more appropriate than higher doses than one might use in more aggressive lymphomas. The big change really is in the context of relapse. In 2012, there really weren't very many effective therapies in this space. temsirolimus was the only licensed drug in Europe, and that has not been used. In fact, is not approved in the UK. So the the major advance has been the BTK inhibitors and ibrutinib we uh, name in the guidelines being the most active single agent in relapsed disease. That's undoubtedly true and earlier use of this drug is appropriate so the recommendations this should be used at first relapse or or later if if needed. Of course that is now nice guidance so that fits completely with the with the nice approach to this disease. In the maintenance setting uh, rituximab adds to whatever treatment you're going to be given, but maintenance is not recommended based on the paucity of evidence. In younger patients, allergenic stem cell transplant remains an appropriate thing to be doing post-relapse. Uh, that's a rare scenario, and we do say that in the frontline setting, uh, frontline allergenic transplantation could be uh, suggested for patients with high-risk disease, although we don't define that specifically in this guideline. that is becoming clearer, particularly those patients with p53 mutation. As I said, that is not actually in the guideline. So we recommend it in high-risk patients or, importantly, as part of a clinical trial. So the major changes then are the incorporation of rituximab in combination with tr- therapy and also in maintenance, particularly post-high-dose therapy. Uh, Allergenic stem cell trans- trans- transplant relapse for younger patients and BTK inhibitors are relapsed for all patients. As with all rare diseases, clinical trials are very important so patients with mental cell lymphoma should be offered clinical trials. Many of the novel therapies in this disease have been pioneered in this country so it's important to think trial. In summary we've discussed the diagnostic approach to this disease We've discussed the uh, management of this disease and also the important things that have changed between the two guidelines that we've produced. I hope you find these useful and helpful. Thank you very much for listening and can I invite you to visit the BSH website where there'll be more exciting podcasts from the British Society of Haematology about our various and important guidelines.